Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? Austin, man. What are you up to? What am I up to? I just uh, got off the phone with a tenant. So dealing with some tenant stuff, working out a payment plan with one, getting their mom to co-sign. Like it's someone who just, they've been having trouble paying rent because they got let go of their job. Now they're $4,000 behind on rent. They're getting paid eighteen or 1900 a month net of taxes. Is this uh, the property we own together? Or? No, no, this is a different property. But anyways, they're about 4,000 behind. They make about 1,900 a month net of taxes, which isn't a lot, right? And yeah. I basically told them, I was like, look, I'm going to... How much is rent? It's, uh, I think it's 850 or 900 bucks. Studio? Uh, yeah, studio. Mm. But still, like, it's not, it's not enough, you it's know? Not enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I told them, I was like, hey, look, like, if we want to work out a payment plan, one of the conditions is I need your mom to co-sign. So he's getting the information, seeing if his mom's willing to do it. He seems like he wants to cooperate, but like he's been a little bit frustrating to deal with as well. So we'll see how it goes. But once I get his mom to co-sign, then I'll feel so much more comfortable, right? <laughs> this guy falls behind a payment and he and there's yeah. like a rent rent plan that he just isn't able to do. I can go after his mom to give all the money then, right? Like it just, it makes me feel so much more comfortable and we'll see what happens. Uh, the guy seems to be willing to cooperate. Let's just see if the mom's willing to cooperate. Don't forget a girlfriend, man. Don't forget a girlfriend. This world's, this world's not meant for single people, bro. Like, how are you supposed oh to pay $850 yeah. earning $1,600 take home? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, really, like the guy shouldn't be living alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like it's just, it's a little bit irresponsible. Yeah. He's a young dude too. So I just doesn't make, maybe it's a cultural thing that I don't understand. Cause if I was making that type of money, I'd just be staying home with my parents, but that's yeah. usually fine in the Asian household. Right. I don't yeah, know if yeah. it's like a cultural thing. But yeah, that's on my end, wholesaling deals. Uh, we wholesale three deals over the last like two weeks or so. So it's been Shit, the market so picking up there. It is. It is picking back up. Like investors are jumping back in the market for the right sorts of deals. It's still definitely slow. Like it's not like fast by any means, but it is better than it was before. And yeah, doing some refinances. If you guys saw my stories, I'm going through some like bullshit. <laughs> with the refinances. I don't even want to get into it right yeah. now unless you care to hear her, but yeah. <laughs> That's well, that. We, we've, we've spoken about it, but I think across the board, like, because I'm struggling on clients' refinances and some of my clients don't put together a deck as much as I tell them to, but the ones that do, like, we go through it together and we, like, prep a sick deck. We send it off. We're, like, asking for, like, 870 when we're, like, low-key okay with, like, 850. And the appraiser calls me. He's like, this is going to be at like 750. I'm like, fuck off. I'm like, well, I hold on, do- hold on. Is the seven, like how, like, here's the tough part. And I had this conversation with someone. Maybe we can talk about it here. When you're doing conversions, there's no mm. precedence. And so it's almost like you need to realize that you can't tell the appraisal, oh, another appraiser, appraiser, who cares? There's no sales comps. There's no precedence, right? Yeah, it's yeah. A gap. So here, this is what we're doing. We comp it to, okay. So in December, the same appraiser gave me for a duplex 750. Okay. Okay. It was a bigger lot though. It was, it was uh, sure, a 200 sure. depth lot, but still 
So he gave me 750. And at that time, we did the exact same strategy in December that we did today. And so at that time, we uh, we we said, look, there's not too many turnkey duplexes in Welland that are selling. So we're going to comp this against, uh, what do we do? St. Catharines, right? And we said, but, you know, we acknowledge the market price between St. Catharines and Welland is different. Here's the average home price for a house that sells in, well- in Welland. Here's what it is in St. Catharines. And I think it's a 10% adjustment factor. We, we factor into every price, into every property, right? So we did the same thing. We got 750 on a duplex in December, which was arguably a slower market than it is now. Right now we're going in for a triplex. The problem is there's actually more fucking sales now, right? Because there are sales in well, and he's like, we can't look at St. Catharines. Yeah. And he said, you know, there are duplexes and triplexes that have sold all sub 750, but they're not renovated. But he said, you know, we can't ignore these well and comps and now point to St. Catharines, which I kind of agreed on. But I was like, well, how did you give me 750 in December? And then now you're telling me a triplex turnkey is worth the same price that a duplex was three months ago. Yeah. So we're going to order another appraisal. I think uh, it is what it is. This is it my is. go-to That's, appraiser guy. I had but... a conversation with an investor about that. I was like, look, when you're doing these sort of conversions, you are taking a huge risk, right? Because you know yeah. price per unit on something that is built as a triplex originally, maybe it's 100 years old, given that. Still, like those are your comparables, right? Like there's yep. not really much conversion sales going on there. So it, it becomes difficult to value the exit value. So with my example, I'll, I'll give it like really, really brief. But I had a, a three unit in Sudbury. So it's a duplex with the in-law suite in the basement. I talked about it in my stories, but the appraiser appraised it to properties that were in Donovan. If anyone knows Sudbury, oh. Donovan's not a great area. And mine was in New Sudbury, right? The closest comp was about, a, I think it was a 35 minute walk away. And the furthest comp was a 15 minute walk away, five zero. Uh, they comp nothing against New Sudbury. And even in the comparable section, it says like district, like you know how uh, Toronto has CO1, CO3, like in downtown Toronto, CO1, I yeah. think. I don't yeah, know, maybe yeah. I screwed that yeah, up. Sudbury yeah, also yeah. has those districts. So yeah. mine was an S1, which is New Sudbury. And all three comps said S3, S3, S3. No adjustment for location. And one of the comps was a fucking semi-detached single-family home with an in-law suite, bro. Against a, a detached <laughs> duplex with an in-law suite, like a th- you know, he yeah, comped you, it against a use? semi. Uh, was that? Right, let's not let's not slide to the guy. <laughs> I was gonna say who'd you use? Because yeah, you know, we we did a um okay, so we did a was it a triplex? I think it was a triplex in Donovan as well. What, what, what value did you get for for mine? Yeah, yeah, three hundred and eighty. 380 for a duplex with in law suite at fucking new Sudbury vacant. <laughs> well, not vacant, but now two market rents, and one of them were, were tenanting at market rent. Yeah, this game is fucked up, man. Eh? <laughs> yeah, what were you gonna say? Game. What did you get? We got 500, and we were pissed. Yeah, we were like, oh, yeah, like low. just imagine me, man. I, oh, I saw that, I saw that, and I was like, how, how are you a competent appraiser comping it against a single family home? semi-detached house right like oh anyways i don't even want to get and then there's another appraisal that like we're getting like our five unit in windsor right now i was telling you but that one got screwed up as well because they they did it based on comps and not based on income really right and then we're able to get the guy to do a little bit of an income approach but he took 22 percent off the top line so like he used five percent for vacancy five percent he's 5% 5% for repairs. He used 5% for CapEx. And then that's he used, like, oh, then he used 8% for property management. He took, that's that's aggressive. 22% off the top line is insane. Right? Yeah. Usually CapEx repairs, you go like 6% and both of them combined. 
yeah. right? Yeah, but he yeah, went ten yeah. percent and vacancies two percent. He went five percent. So he went really yeah, yeah. aggressive. Twenty two percent variable, and then the rest were the fixed expenses, fixed expenses. being cut off. Yeah, of it. Yeah. yeah, and then use the six point five cap on top of that. That's pretty high, no? For uh, I don't know if Windsor's trading that high. Yeah, now, yeah. For but... East Windsor Turnkey, six point five oh, cap East plus yeah, plus twenty two percent off the top. So obviously, like it didn't. It wasn't what we're looking at. So it came in at 900. But Th- we're- this is the first time going larger multifamily though, right? I guess that's actually in line with our guest today. <laughs> um, but I think when you get into these bigger projects, like every appraiser is going to have their own assumptions and their own variables that they use. And every lender is then on top of that going to have their own fucking shit that they have to use, right? So the world of unknowns becomes drastic. But as long as you don't need to like pull out every single dollar, then I think it's okay. But if you're in a yeah. situation where you need to and... JV partner probably wants everything out, right? Yeah, I mean, appraisers are going to do whatever to appraising slow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, you just need to have some exit strategies in the background, whether that be going through another lender or getting a reappraisal or figuring that out, right? You want to reduce the variance and the noise of appraisal values coming in too low. Anyways, enough about our life and what we're going through. We're going to jump into today's podcast. We're having a part two session. This is with Kellen James. If you remember, Kellen was on our podcast, I think in episode 18 or one of the first 20 episodes yeah, yeah. for sure. Go back and revisit there. But one of the cool things about Kellen is, is that he owns over 80 plus units, no joint ventures. Everything is like owned by himself. And it's a portfolio that he's accumulated over the period of, I think it's like six or seven years now. Imagine that over 80 units in six to seven years is incredible. And it's in London, Ontario. We get into so many interesting topics today that I don't think many guests really speak on, like the value of growing a real estate portfolio yourself, growing stable in a market like Mm -hmm. this, or like growing your portfolio nice and slow, which Kellen even gets into some of the mistakes he made in the past growing too aggressively and how he would change things in today's market. There's so many interesting topics that I just really don't hear investors talk about. So honestly, one of my favorite conversations that we had in a little bit, know that you guys will enjoy this episode. Leave us a five-star review. Share this with a friend if you enjoy this podcast. And let's get into it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest for part two, Kellen James. Kellen, how's everything going, man? Things are going well. How about you guys? Doing great, Kellen. Doing great. So, Kellen, you were last on the podcast episode 18. That was almost two years ago. So, I'm sure there's a lot of new listeners that... Yeah, didn't listen to the first like 50 episodes. So why don't you give everyone a quick rundown on yourself, who you are, your investing journey, and then we'll almost jump ahead to what you're doing today and, and so on. Yeah. So yeah, I'm Kellen James. I started investing in 2016. That was when I did basically I did my computer science degree. I worked in the tech world for up until then. And I started investing in my first duplex at that time. I knew I wanted to kind of reach financial independence. And originally my thought process was through index funds, that sort of thing. And I decided, you know, actually. I'm probably going to dive into real estate. So I bought my first duplex and did the very typical live in one half, rent the other, and then moved into the other side, did the same thing, like renovated it myself. And then I got into like the 20% down, you know, everything else from there was 20% down because that first one was five. And then just kind of continued burning from there. So I think last time we talked, I don't remember where my portfolio was at, maybe probably 52 units or something like that around then. As of today, I'm at 83. It got up to 88 and I've kind of sold a couple recently. Just I've been actually in like a stabilization deleveraging stage recently. But yeah, so 2021 was a year when I bought 51 units. So I sold some and then I ended up buying 51 units. So my portfolio at this point is just, it, there's been a lot. We've turned over 
30% of like the, the new acquisitions, we need to continue turning things over and getting things stabilized. So that's sort of where things are at. And, and as of now, still zero joint venture partners and not like massive amounts of private debt either. So really just trying to keep things simple and safe and scalable for the long term. So just burring multifamily properties and all in London, Ontario. Awesome. There's a ton to unpack there. Mario, it looked like you wanted to say something or could I? No, he, I mean, he just literally addressed the last point that I was going to say is it, or is your portfolio still all in uh, London, Ontario? But so I, I think the earlier episodes we were dug into some of the earlier properties you bought, the single family, duplex, the triplexes, and so on. 2021, you buy 50 units. Walk us through that because I don't think we would have covered that. What was that process like? I'm assuming you're not buying 25 duplexes. You probably bought some larger multifamilies and those require bigger checks, like huge checks, right? Sometimes you're putting like 25, 30% down payment. So. I'm just curious to walk us through how you made that switch, mentor hurdles, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So 2021, I sold five buildings. That was 15 units. I sold off some duplexes and triplexes and one sixplex that I knew wasn't something I wanted to hold for the long term because it was illegal. It wasn't zoned properly. And I didn't really think it was possible to get it approved as legal. So I thought, you know, let's liquidate some of this stuff and put it towards some new acquisitions of larger buildings. So the buildings I bought... I bought two eight plexes, an 11 plex, and a 24 unit, and all with no partners. So, yeah, the checks were ridiculous. Luckily, I had a really significant amount of equity that I pulled up from the sale of those other properties. I don't remember how much, but it was over a million for sure of capital that well over a million that I put together. So, I know that I also remember my tax bill, which was about 360 grand because of the capital gains. So, that was like the like, oh yeah, that's why burring is so important. Like <laughs> you never sell, then you don't have to pay that tax. It was like, whoosh, like that was a huge tax bill. So, you know, paid off that tax bill. And then the money that I did have remained that, that I had left over after tax was, yeah, was put into all those acquisitions. So I remember even the 24 unit building was that alone was over a million dollars down just for the down payment. And again, no partners, just me. So these were all pretty significant acquisitions. And one of the eight unit buildings I bought ended up being my best, probably my best deal, maybe on par with some of my other best deals, but bigger, which was nice. So I bought that building for 600,000, which is completely absurd for eight units. It had nine separate meters, all one bedroom units and a huge lot. And it was in the core of London and near the down in the, in the Soho neighborhood, if people are aware of it. So it's like a C neighborhood type of thing, like in London, but you can actually get perfectly high quality tenants in those neighborhoods when they're renovated well. So it's kind of the sweet spot. So I bought it for 600 grand on market and, and I put probably 400 into it. So I was in for about a million and it reappraised at 1.75. Wow. So yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> what deterred people from taking down that deal? Cause you got it at a fantastic price. Yeah, there were no photos in the listing. The listing said bulk metering. So it implied that there's only one meter and then you go and look and no, there's nine. It was actually a long story, but I won't tell the whole thing. I knew the sellers off market. It was a large, well-known family in London that had been around for 50 years. They sold off their entire portfolio, thousands of units, something like that. And I was working with them off market. I did buy one of the eight plexes from them off market. And then they eventually were starting to put a package together. They wanted to work with a broker. And I was like, I'd love to get one of these done privately. And they're like, no, we're getting all these appraisals and stuff on them now. And so then it ended up going on market, but they kind of flooded the market, which was interesting because at that time, things were still really quite hot, but they flooded with so many multifamilies all at the same time. Some of them got picked off and 
this one sort of flew under the radar for the most part somehow. And they were listed at 750, which I thought was already amazing. I mean, it had like it all rented for like $600. So the rents were terrible and it was a difficult, you know, like the financing, I suppose, was a little difficult. But I mean, I saw the opportunity in it and I, I ended up I put I put an offer in $150,000 under asking. And they just accepted it. <laughs> so, I guess it shows. Wow. It, once again, just shows the value of just put in offers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's funny is if you were to do that deal off market, you would have actually probably paid a little bit more because I you would wouldn't want to have them risk it to throw it on the market. So it worked out really well for you. Yeah. Now, one of the things that a lot of people don't get into is obviously the stress and the headaches of buying 50 units in a year, especially if you're doing it yourself and you're trying to minimize leverage obviously if you're buying to that scale you need to take a decent amount of leverage to scale up that yeah. being said how did you prepare yourself financially to be confident to do these deals because you think about it 50 units let's say even half of them turn over to have that capital to pay cash for keys for half of the units and renovate it is is extensive for even yeah. the most experienced investors so could you walk us through the financial path of how you were able to get these deals done and how you prepared yourself yeah, so I'll be honest, this was one of my lessons learned. That was scaling too fast for not having any other equity partners. Like this strategy of investing with no partners, it needs to be done slow and steady over a long period of time. That's really the only way to approach this. Historically, I've been buying in waves and then I'll have stabilization years. And so when you do that, you can acquire a decent amount of capital and then go on a buying spree again. But this buying spree was good. It was a little much, honestly. Like, Looking back, especially with the market correction, it was like this last while. It was like, yeah, that that was a that was a period of over leverage, and it, it all was like 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 so many people, it would have been it would have been absolutely no problem had I got the reappraisals I needed to. But the reality is, I got the values that I needed, but the loan to values on the refinance were like fifty five, fifty, maybe sixty percent loan to value, like really shit loan to values. So. Luckily, even with that, that eightplex was still a perfect burr. Right. But it would have been an even better deal. And like it would have been no problem. You take the money that I got, uh, the extra money I got, and use it to pay off some private loans, right? Just from like friends and fellow investors. The reality is I was able to get all my own money out. I was able to pay off a chunk of it. And then I was like, you know what? Now, other than trying to like squeeze more refinances out of my existing portfolio, which I did some of as well, the last bit has been a stabilization period and a bit of a deleveraging period, you know, like. That was a significant year of acquisitions. So luckily I had some other buildings, two, three unit buildings that have a good that had a lot of equity in them. That I was like, I'm actually gonna sell them off. So I sold off two buildings recently. That's why my numbers went down from 88 to 83 units. I sold a duplex and a triplex. And that's just hundreds of thousands that I could just pay off private loans. Because like there is a situation where I could go, yeah, I could kick the can down the road, I could hold onto this money, do I can understand that in the long run this will work out. But I really think that I want my portfolio to make sense, not only in the long run, but month to month as well. So I think that's an important part of scaling a portfolio over the long term, because that way you can ride through periods like this. So the deleveraging this last bit has been just refinance is what I could sell a couple and pay off a bunch of private loans just to get back to a safe, comfortable position again. So that's kind of where things have been at this last bit. And the reality of it is, if anybody has been saying that things have been going wonderfully, for the last couple of years in the real estate space, basically everyone has had their struggles this last while. I know this because I've spoken with countless investors. And you know, when, when you're speaking with them candidly, people are stressed. People are having a hard time during these times, you know. So, and if they're not, they probably should relook at their numbers because if they're really starting to reanalyze how things are looking or how are things going to look when their portfolio does come up for renewal, even if they didn't have 
variable mortgages, they're going to come due. The rates are going to be higher. And if you have 10, 20 buildings and all of them come up for renewal in the next few years, your cash flow is just going to crash, you know, and you're not going to get the loan to values you want if you do want to refinance. So luckily, financially realized all of those things this last while. So actually, a ton of my portfolio at this point is, is with either current rates or like, you know, one and a half percent less than current rates because I locked in six months ago. So my portfolio at this point is kind of tested what these rates look like, which is good. I feel pretty decent about how things are going to look going forward. And so when you were going through the acquisition phase, jumping into the larger multis, what were you really looking for, right? Because I think there's a couple of things that you had casually mentioned there. So one is that you were in C neighborhoods now. Is that because, you know, that's just where these apartment buildings are usually located, right? And the ones that are in A plus neighborhoods are like 300 grand a unit or something crazy like that, right? So that was one. Did you focus on vacancy or did you, were you just not afraid to go cash for keys? And yeah, like, like how did you ensure yeah. that the deals that you were looking at and taking down were, were kind of guaranteed for success or did you take yeah. it Well, luckily the 24 and the 11 unit were both in what I would call like more of a B neighborhood. So they're in Woodfield neighborhood in London, probably one of the nicer neighborhoods in the downtown core area. So those ones are in a good location. The eight plex was in a C, like it's more of a C neighborhood. But I've never had trouble getting quality tenants in that neighborhood. I've owned other buildings in that area. And as long as you renovate things well, you still get, you know, we're getting 1250 for the one bedrooms kind of thing. I'm still not doing any Airbnbs or short-term or furnished rentals or any of that. It's all just the standard one, two-bedroom long-term rentals. But what was the second part of your question there? I guess just like when you get into these properties, like what are you looking for? Like what's your investing strategy? And I guess the second part there is like vacancies, cash for keys. Were you negotiating these during like the conditional period or were you taking a little bit of risk there? Yeah. Yeah. So no, there was a chance. So like the the eight plex came with two vacant units. We got the other six turned over with cash for keys. So that was five to 10 grand per tenant. And eventually they accepted. You generally find with these types of buildings, I think Austin's talked about this before as well. There's sort of an anchor tenant. So that was sort of the situation here is like, once we got like one or two of them out, it kind of just went in a wave. The other four were like, yeah, we're leaving too. And the other two were already vacant. So cash for keys is, is the name of the game in Ontario for the foreseeable future or probably forever. If you want people to move, you got to pay them. So it's just part of your budget at this point. You know, look at your renovations budget and look at your cash for keys budget. And 10 grand is kind of an all day thing at this point. You know, like it's pretty common to have to pay. I've had some success recently. We get people out for three, four, you know, like we do try to get that done. But some people are like, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to leave. Like, and, and the reality of it is that's the downside of low vacancy rates. You know, when we have low vacancy rates, the option for people to move is not there. So we actually, all of us want higher vacancy rates to some degree. Like we want some flexibility because when we want these turnovers, we need to have, we need to be able to present other units to these tenants. So sometimes we'll move them into my other buildings have given maybe a slight rent discount at the other building, but at least we got the turnover here. So trying to shift people around like that. But yeah, that's a massive part of it. You know, the 24 units so far, we've turned eight of the units over. The 11 unit, we've turned four of them over and so on and so forth with the rest of my portfolio. I think I'm only at still like 60% of the portfolio overall turned over, something like that. So there's lots left and which is nice because every time I get a turnover, my cash flow was up by like four to $700, you know, like, so are you running your numbers on an after repair value based on the units that you know are vacant? Or do you assume that you'd be able to negotiate a certain percentage of the units to be vacant? Yeah, exactly. More like a percentage of the units. So yeah, you can't expect mm-hmm. to get 100% of them. And you need to be able to ride through a scenario where you hardly get any. 
Yeah. You know, if you're buying an 11 unit building, there's a decent chance you get at least a couple of them, you know, two or three of them. There's some low hanging fruit and people are happy to just accept some money sometimes. But, you know, you have to expect that, yeah, on an 11 unit building that maybe four or five of them just refuse to leave. We need to be able to ride through that scenario. I think it makes sense to approach those types of projects in phases. So maybe you do get a refinance partway through and then, you know, a couple of years later, you get another refinance. So that's been a huge lesson that I've learned, which I already knew, but like now I'm experiencing. And is that when you get into these larger buildings, they just move slower. You're trying to get a triplex turned over is something you can get done really quickly. Six, 12 months, maybe you get it done, turned over and refinanced. Eight, 12, 24, like these are going to be multi-year projects for sure. So mm-hmm. the nice thing about it is when you do get the refinances, they're like hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It's just done in bigger chunks at a time. But I do like the sense of scale. So like I like having a significant number of assets under management so that in the long run, you know, even just averaging 3% appreciation, the mortgage pay down that you get from it, and then of course the cash flow. And the cash flow needs to be there for future resale value because that's what people are going to be looking at to make sure the property makes sense as an acquisition. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at all of those things. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Nowadays, cash flow is tough after refi, as oh, you yeah. imagine. You're basically buying it back at market value <laughs> with the yeah. with the current interest rates. But I just wanted to have a better understanding of kind of the due diligence process of these multis. One thing that's always worried me, and it is, I, I would say it's a limiting belief that I have, is, is when I underwrite these deals, exactly what you were saying, like, you can't really guarantee you're going to get too many tenants out. You might be able to get a few but I almost feel worried about underwriting even for a few, because if they choose to stay, a lot of the times I'm not very OK with holding the asset as it is, because it is right. bleeding unless you're putting a significant amount and down. Yeah. How do you kind of get over that mental barrier? Do you go and kind of meet the tenants beforehand, understand the profile? Are you doing OK? I, I see you nodding your head. No. Uh, no. Would you be able to walk me through that process, though? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's a lesson that we've all learned on. We, we learned pretty early and that we're trying to scale at this point. And the lesson is you're working on one thing and you know it's going to take time. So you move on to the next thing, you know, like you send an email, you don't wait for the person to reply. You move on to the next email, you move on to the next task. It's sort of the same thing with the portfolio. And I think that's the way to view it. You buy a building, you do what you can with it. You understand maybe, okay, this is going to take more time. It might take multiple years, but in the long run, that's going to be a great asset to own. Moving on to this other project, let's do what we can here and this other project here as well. And just like, so we're jumping, like we're renovating six, seven different buildings simultaneously. You know, like we're just trying to like move all the projects forward the best we can. And then all, every once in a while you go, okay, that building's ready now. Like let's bring that in for a refinance. Mm-hmm. The reality of it is like at scale, if you're trying to make sense of every single deal at a low level, it's, it's a bit of micromanagement. And I mean, it could be a really good thing to some degree, but it could hold people back from taking on deals that could work out really well in the long run. So mm-hmm. everything I'm viewing now, I'm viewing as a 20 year period, you know, like, how does this look if I take it on? Is this the kind of building I want to own for 20 years? Yeah, the market's here, but it doesn't matter because in 20 years, things will be good. It's not like buy anything, but it's like, you don't need to time the market in that scenario, right? You don't need to go, is this a good time to buy? It's like, as long as the deal makes sense as of today's numbers, and it's got a buffer for things to get a little worse, you're in a good situation to take that on and say things do get worse. You're able to ride it through. We know it. You know, If you're an index fund investor, you wouldn't sell when things are low. You just hold on and ride it through. So you want to make sure the mm-hmm. buildings you're buying have that as an option. Gotcha. So part of me thinks, because I'm going through the same kind of mentor world, which is why I find it super cool that what Kellen's talking about. But 
I think we're used to doing single family duplexes and triplexes where it's get in, get out, like really quick. Like yeah. the faster you can do it, six months is like too long, right? Yeah. And then when you start looking at these apartment buildings, it's like, okay, like you got to be okay with leaving the capital in here for maybe like for sure one year, right? Like we're talking at least one year, possibly years. even like yeah. two years or like three years or something like that, right? So I think it becomes a little bit easier when it's not like it's almost kind of like made up money, right? Like you're selling this property. Like Kellen sold a bunch of properties that has that just had a bunch of equity in there. And in theory, that equity wasn't being turned around anyway. It was just kind of sitting there, right? So if you take that parked money and you just park it in a better, more efficient vehicle, and if it sits there, it really makes no difference. The difference kind of comes when you're like a new investor and you've got like a hundred grand. That's all you have. You got to recycle it as fast as possible. So that makes a lot of sense. So where does like private money fit into the picture? Like how do you use the private money? Are you raising money for like renovations? Are you trying to do it more on the down payment and keep your own capital for renovations? Like how do you look at and leverage private money in your portfolio? Yeah, more so for renovations, but I've definitely had situations where it's for down payments as well. I really like to avoid too much of that going forward. That was a great lesson learned during all this time because I've been unwinding a bunch of it, right? That's what the two sales were for, pay off a bunch of private loans. So it's just like, I don't want to have situations where I don't have to, but like it makes sense to me to have to sell right now. You know, so I sold a couple. It wasn't a great time to be selling. I'd rather just hung under those for years to come. So you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're like, maybe I should sell that building right now. You know, luckily none of it was ever at a loss or anything. It was always significant wins because I've owned the buildings for a few years or whatever. But yeah, private money, like, yeah, it's generally just not, I've just been doing it through promissory notes, just private loans through friends and fellow investors. And they're always one and the same because most of my friends are real estate investors. So mm-hmm. if you establish yourself as somebody out there who's trustworthy that you can loan to, then things are fine. But I really urge most people to be extremely, extremely cautious or if they're even considering loaning out money on promissory notes or even in second position, especially right now. So, and the reason is like, I've always considered myself a fairly competent investor. And even I was like, ooh, like I'm not particularly a fan of how these numbers are looking right now. And I had to make my correction. And like, these were, fan- you see, like some of these deals were fantastic. And even still, I'm like, that didn't work out quite the way I wanted. So, like, People who are buying deals that weren't absolute home run, you know, rate like unicorn deals. It's like, man, like they really would have been going through some stuff during this time. I and mean, the only way that you really people can get out of it is through other cash that they had sitting around, hopefully from success in other realms. But yeah, so people need to be extremely cautious on the loaning side of things. And on the borrowing side of things, people really need to understand what it looks like to unwind debt. I talked about this a bit with Mark Loeffler recently on his podcast there, because like, I know that it's still for some reason considered sexy to raise capital right now. And man, is it not like on the borrower's side, like it's not about raising money. It's about making money. And like, if the deals you're doing aren't like home runs and they're not great deals, then we shouldn't be borrowing all this money. It needs to be a clear cut plan to pay out investors. And it really, really seems like a ton of people out there are just borrowing money to pay interest to other people who've borrowed money. And we're seeing how that plays out. We've seen multiple We've seen a bunch of examples of this crumbling down at this point in Ontario and in Canada. And so I'm trying to urge people both on the borrowing side and on the lending side to be extremely cautious because I've unwound a bunch of this debt recently and I saw how difficult that process was. And I had nowhere near the amount of debt that some of these other people have. You know, like I'm talking half a million kind of thing. It was like, oh, cool, I'll pay, I'll sell a duplex and a triplex, pay it off. All good, but like people who've got millions and millions, and the projects they're in aren't particularly sellable right now. Like their apartment buildings that they maybe they would sell for what they bought them for at this point. It's like 
okay, how do you ride that through while you're at a negative burn rate? And well, I don't know, none of it makes any sense. And the only way it does make sense is that people haven't crumbled to some degrees because they've just been able to continue borrowing. Luckily, yeah. you know, like people- It's a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> it, basically. It, it, it can be, and it's not with that intention, you know, like yeah. people can go into this with great intentions as the borrower, but they don't understand that the deals they're doing aren't sustainable enough to give the returns they're giving. You know, mm-hmm. So really urging people both on the borrowing and lending side to be cautious. I think ultimately a lot of our real estate here doesn't support a lot of private money, but I guess if it's for a short period of time, I've always questioned, I'm like, yo, like I have about 400K, 450K in private money where I'm a borrower, but they're all in like first position mortgages. And, and so like the risk is like relatively low on that. But even oh, yeah. when I like borrow private money, I'm like, fuck, how am I going to like pay this? That was like a 2000 or $3,000 a month bleed out of my own pocket which is like, yeah. sure, I've got like my other source of revenue and stuff. But when you're like full-time into real estate and, and grinding away at it, real estate doesn't pay well uh, until you like get paid on the tail end. As long as the answer to how do I pay off the $2,000 payment, it, as long as the answer to that isn't through other borrowed money, <laughs> then the thing mm-hmm. should be all right. But but the reality of it is that's basically everyone. Like that's a huge portion of investors right now. Yeah, That was a, a click that I had six, 12 months ago. I went, this isn't making sense. So that was why I sold a couple of buildings, deleveraged and got back into a safe position. So man, like, yeah, people really need to look at what it would look like to unwind their debt. I think that's a really important thing to consider right now. I definitely agree with you, Kellen. And I caught myself in that situation as well. It's very hard to not be in that situation when you saw everyone making money hands over fist, especially in early 2022, 2021. I purchased, I talked about it in the podcast before, a brief summary. I purchased a six unit and then I levered up fully 100% loan to value plus construction costs, renovation costs for it as well. So I was in for, for no money. And Fortunately, I was able to turn over all the six units, but even during that time, I just didn't feel good because I've raised, what is it like? Well, maybe just around 800, 900,000. And I don't have that in cash sitting around. And even yeah. if I was to sell assets, it would take time. You know, yeah, And exactly. I don't want to have a fire sale with any of them. So it was an uneasy feeling, even if the project was going well, just being in that much of a leverage position, having no equity in this asset whatsoever. It's stressful. And I think it's definitely the logic in my head kicking in saying that, look, like if something happens, how am I going to pay this person back? Do I have money I can just like simply pull out? And it wasn't the case. Fortunately, we wrapped up yeah. that deal, refied and moved on. Yeah. But even this though that deal worked period of time, right? Yeah. Even if it works out as a home run, it's still there's still that voice in your head knowing that things can go wrong. And if you don't have the liquidity to back it up, then it's, you know, it could be the end of the road for you. The thing is, is not everyone has that voice in their head, you know, and this is the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. You know, people like us, where we look at it and go, oh, like this doesn't make sense. I need to make a correction here and I shouldn't be overconfident. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is people who are just super confident, but haven't really thought through the course, how this plays out. So I think that like, you know, a successful investor, if we're looking at a 20, 30 year period, they understand when they're in periods of time where things are a little bit over leveraged or they're just, they're not going the way the, quite the way they want to, and they make corrections. They don't just keep plowing forward as if nothing's happened, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think not getting overconfident. So <laughs> I was just going to say on that topic, like given, because me and Austin, right before you jumped on, we were talking about this exact kind of thing and where we are in this asset bubble cycle. And, you know, I don't think anyone doubts that we're in a bubble. The question is, how long does the bubble go on and does it actually burst or is it just a small correction and stuff like that? So for people that are looking to get into the larger multifamily, like call it like, 
call like a six to 15 unit kind of apartment building, not like 50 units to be crazy, but yeah. the small stuff, or the medium stuff. Like what are the risks that you see? Like what are people doing right? What are people doing wrong? Is right now a time to be making that level up? Just kind of share what your thoughts are on the current real estate market in that segment. I think things need to be more predictable in order to make sense of a deal right now. So like if you're finding a six unit building and it comes with three or four vacant units, then like you can kind of see the plan, you know, you can take it on. If not, you know, if it's a six unit building, it's all filled with tenants that are paying low, but you get it under at a really great price. I mean, you're still in a situation where this might not work out in the short term, but if you're in a situation where you're using your own money, which is a term we haven't heard in a long time, people actually using their own money. If you're using your own money, it's not as crazy of a risk, right? Like you can take that building on, but like I would say 99% of the listeners aren't in that situation because we love real estate for leverage. But I think that the down payments should be coming out of our own pocket for the most part in the long run. I think that otherwise we're in situations where we get a little too leveraged. So I think, yeah, yeah. you know, you can see how that works. If you buy a six unit building, it's got all these tenants and it turns out you couldn't get any of them out or you got one or two of them out. Well, at least it's your own money in there. Yeah, it's not necessarily getting the return that you want, but you're not in a situation where you have people that you owe that you can't pay off. And then you're scaling up a system like that. It makes no sense. So, mm. you know, maybe people get back into a situation where they use their own money because when debt is as expensive as it is and it's difficult to get the refinances you need, yeah, it can be a scary situation. So, and again, like the thing people need to realize is like you're listening to, you know, competent investors here, people who know what they're doing, who have a proven track record over many years. And even us, even we were like, oh, this didn't work out the way I wanted. So, like, you know, the reality of it is almost everyone out there has been going through some difficult times, whether they are talking about it or not. You know, it's just we're actually speaking about, <laughs> you know, our experience the last bit. So, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to make a comment of what Callan said, bringing in a down payment with their own money. And some of our listeners may be like, how do we, we don't have hundreds of thousands sitting on the sideline. Kel, I know one thing that you're a big proponent of, and maybe you can touch on this a little bit more, is getting in on 5% down and house hacking with the four unit, right? Yeah. And that's how you really got started off, like house hacking with minimum down payment and then trading off. It's not like you got 88 units overnight. It took a while between the first, second and third property. And then yeah. it started snowballing. So why don't you talk a little bit about that strategy? Yeah, exactly. I think that like for those people who are like, I want to scale quick and I want to do it now. It's like, why don't you just start with that first building, you know? And then maybe you can figure out a way to make that second building work in a way that isn't too over leveraged, you know? But like, yeah, that first building, 5% down, you know, a duplex, you can use the home buyer's plan to pull money out of your RSP. You can use purchase plus improvements mortgage. You can do all of these things on the same deal. You can end up in a situation where you're zero out of pocket or very little out of pocket on that property. And you can move on to that second building potentially and just take it building by building. The thing is, is like, I've been investing now for seven years and these years go by quickly. So like, if you go, maybe I'm going to buy one building a year, even one building a year is fantastic. You know, if you're getting a duplex every year, you'll have 10 units in five years. It's not that, and, and you'll own them all, you know, without partners, you'll be in a safe position that you're not super over leveraged. You have a good amount of equity in these buildings. That's a great position to be in. Personally, I'm happier to have the 83 units I have than if I had 160 or 170 with partners. I'm not about like necessarily having this massive portfolio. I'd rather have something that like I own and I'm in a relatively safe situation on and that I have the sleep at night factor. So I think people need to just be like, it's okay to scale slowly, but I'm going to be able to actually do this consistently over a long period of time. Because if you're scaling too quickly, you're, you're just going to have to hit the brakes at some point. So mm -hmm. maybe don't scale as quickly, you know, it's, it's totally fine. Maybe you end up buying two buildings a year. I mean, and then you've got 20 units in like five years or 
Maybe you're buying triplexes and fourplexes. Like this stuff scales. Even if you're buying one or two buildings a year, that's that's fast. You know, that's yeah. that's fast. It enough. just doesn't sound sexy in Instagram, though, Kellen. <laughs> you know, like it's not going in with the coaching programs. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and and like and that's such a hard thing because I do coaching and like and the reality of it is I turned away so many people because people are like, I want to scale really fast. I want to do this because they see they see I have a large portfolio. It's like I did scale relatively fast, but like first off, we're in a different market right now. Second off, these deals need to be fantastic in order to scale that fast. You need to be riding a bit of a wave. We were riding a wave for all those years, you know, like I'm not scaling as quickly right now as I was in 2020, you know, or anything like that. At this point, like with my coaching stuff, the only people I take on at the, for the most part are people who have a decent amount of capital, their own money, you know, they're not like, I have no money, but I'm willing to raise a bunch. I'm like, sorry, like, I don't think that you should do that. That's not my advice to you. I can't, I can't even, I, I'm a little frustrated when I hear about stories a dozen plus stories from people in other coaching programs that are using half of their money to pay for the program. And they're left with barely enough to buy a property. And then the property they buy, the expectations are completely off. I think it's equally as big of a concern when people are now buying using like their HELOCs, right? And I think that's just like completely not spoken about widely enough because HELOCs are now like fucking like 7.3%. And if you have a B side HELOC, it's like 12, 13%. I'm like, yo, that's close to like the private money rate that we were paying when we were like scaling up, right? And if you're going to owe that money, like if your bird goes wrong and now you owe that money for an extended period of time, like it's not necessarily cheap money, right? I agree with what you're saying as well, Like I think people need to just save the money, stack it up, right? Like go through the hardships of like, just like the first like 50 or 100 grand is often from like working a job and being as frugal as possible, right? What I like is that Alex Ormosi is getting popularity and one of his core messages is, do it, do one thing, do it well, and do it consistently over a long period of time. That's been my message for years. That's all I've been trying to tell people. Like, you don't need to be like taking on all these partners and scaling this portfolio in this massive way. And like, it's like, no, just do one thing, burr in whatever market you're in and do it consistently over years and years. And that's all I've been doing since 2016. And one other point I wanted to make is like the debt you are borrowing, what is the availability for renewals? Because the reality is, with private loans, those things come up for renewal. You're borrowing on a one or two year term from someone on a promissory note or whatever it may be, or now coming due, how do you pay them out? Like if you're borrowing at least with a HELOC and things like that, you know, at least that money is not like coming due necessarily, as long as banks are doing fine. So when are things coming due? And if you have debts that are at least like you were saying, like yours is like a private loan, but it's on in first position on a property, odds are pretty good they'll be open to a renewal when it comes to term if needed. But some of these other things, like they're coming due and you don't want to be the guy who's like, I can't pay it out. I don't have the money, you know? You just, you just go and raise more. <laughs> That's what everyone else does. No, you got to keep feeding the body. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> That's the long-term investing side, which I think makes sense. And I know you, you briefly touched on, you know, that you're not really an Airbnb. I don't think you really split too much or anything like that, right? But just, I guess, based on the students that you, uh, what kind of strategies are working for newer investors in today's market? The sweet spot seems to be maybe a three or four unit building that ideally comes with one or two vacant units. Like something like that would be a great property for someone to take on. You know, like you're still able to get residential financing on it. So the rates are going to be a little bit lower. You're not getting into stuff that's too big because when you get to like eight plus units, a lot of times property taxes start to skyrocket. There's some degree of momentum that you can have. I mean, those first few deals as an early investor need to have some degree of momentum. Otherwise, you get stuck. You know, you buy a deal and you're like, now I'm out of money. I didn't get any of my money back out. I can't buy the next deal. So there needs to be momentum and it needs to be safe. Like those first one or two or three deals need to be 
quite predictable. You don't want to be in a situation, I've seen it, where you get a deal, it turns out, man, like I can't get these tenants out. I have no way where I can get my money out. And that was all my money. And it's like, you might be stuck there now for three to five years. So things should be relatively predictable. So whether you're putting offers in, requesting vacant possession, maybe you can find something that already has vacant units. It's such a good deal that you can budget for like up to 20 grand or something to pay tenants. Like something where you're like, I know I have a pretty decent chance of getting some tenants out here. And yeah, I think like, like I said, three to four units, because you can still get the residential financing. And in most markets, those tend to be the buildings that cash flow the best. And then trying to approach the financing again, like maybe even if you couldn't do a burr, you could still do purchase plus improvements. I've done that in the past with buildings that I, with units that didn't turn over. So I'd get in there and I would like paint the cabinets and do something. And then, and then I'd go back to the bank and say, Hey, I can I get my money back out for the purchase plus improvements. And I didn't even get the turnover, but I still got the money out. So you could do stuff like that. And in a situation like that, you might also be able to convince the tenant, you know, hey, if we do these renos, can you pay a little bit more in rent? So you can get creative with things like that. But the main lesson is those first few deals should be relatively predictable and they should have some degree of momentum built into them. Once you have mm-hmm. a portfolio that's large enough, the momentum starts to get kind of built in. You know, if you own 10 buildings, you've just finished refinancing the 10th, you can go back to the first and then the second. And generally, there's some option to access equity again. The portfolio gets momentum built into it. But those first few deals, you need to force it. You really need to. So one thing that I wanted to to chat about, this is a little bit off topic, but circling back into the multifamily space, MLI Select. What are your thoughts on it? Because I have have mixed opinions on it, depending on how you're using it. And I think investors are using it in a way such that is risky, in my opinion. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So overall, not a fan is kind of the is the way that I would start with it. I would say that there are maybe select scenarios. If you have a building that's completely stabilized, you have no intention of accessing any further equity in the next five years out of it. There might be situations where that works. And we're talking about Ontario for the most part here. I think that these programs like CMHC, commercial CMHC programs, they seem like they work a lot better West. And I think the reason is that the appraised values they were getting out West are a lot better. The problem with CMHC is that you have to use CMHC's appraisers and they're going to appraise the building lower than if you can hire your own appraiser and just work with a credit union. So while the loan to value may be higher, the volume is lower. So the reality is the loan you get sometimes isn't that much better. They also come with significant fees when you're talking about like 4% or like I have all the notes on it, but I, I dove all into this and, and the fees are significant. You're talking tens of thousands in fees. Yeah, they're rolled into the mortgage, but we can't just ignore the fact that those fees are there. Like there's been lots of scenarios where I'll compare two different lenders. One of them I get more money out now, but it comes with 20 grand in fees that are built into the mortgage. And I'm like, I'd rather have less money now, but know that I didn't pay that $20,000 fee. My understanding though, is if you are going to be diving into these things, at least in Ontario, First National seems like one of the better options. They're one of the few that... Is it First National? Oh, it's First National. They're one of the First few National that... Pretty good. Uh, yeah. So I think they're the ones allow seconds. Because something, you know, if you say two years down the line, you want to access more equity of that building, you can get a second, you know, certain lender, like as of today, and who knows, you have to look into this for yourself. But a lot of lenders won't allow seconds after these loans. The other thing you can do is you can actually get, I'm not an expert at this stuff, but my understanding is you can get your own COI, like certificate of whatever, I forgot it is, but you can get your own COI done somehow. I don't know exactly how this works, but then you can actually bring that to all the different lenders that you want to do a CMHC application with, and you'll be able to negotiate a better rate with them, and you'll be able to compare rates and maybe have them kind of fight against each other to get the best rate. So there mm-hmm. are ways to maybe optimize it if you're going to that world, but 
that was something that I dipped my toe in a bit, like just learned what I needed to and decided this isn't for me. I really like the flexibility of working with credit unions. For example, my 24 unit building, we've turned eight of the 24 over, but the interest rate went up from like 2.7 to 6.7. So the cash flow just went, I mean, the building went, the building, I think the mortgage went up by seven to eight grand a month, like really serious. So I was like, okay, well, I'm glad we got those turnovers. That helped a lot, but it still loses a little bit of money. Like it's still, it's still cash flow negative. And I don't like that I put a million dollar down payment into this thing and it's losing money right now. That's a terrible return on investment. I know it'll work out in the long run. But what I did was I went to my credit union and said, look, this is the situation. I've approached this in every way that a competent investor would. I've turned eight of the 24 over. We're expecting to get four more in the next year. We'll have 12 of them turned over. But in the meantime, can we convert this to an interest-only loan? And after a month or two of back and forth and putting a business case together, they converted it to an interest-only loan for a year. CMHC and stuff, they're not like, you know, like these big banks and stuff, they're not going to entertain anything like that. But when you can lay out a scenario and show that what you're doing is everything that a competent investor would do, and it's still kind of not working out the way you want, then, you know, and that, that dropped my mortgage by $3,700 a month by converting it to interest only. Mm-hmm. So some of these flexibility, Pretty some crazy. of these things you can do with credit unions. And I've done some quirky stuff this last while because I moved, you know, I started a three tiered corporate structure. I started moving stuff out of my personal name and into my corp. I was doing that through Section 85 rollovers, bear trust agreements, all this quirky, confusing stuff. And the credit unions were really nice to work with me on that stuff. You know, like they were able to, they understood that, yeah, this is for tax purposes. So we're going to help you structure it that way so that your accountant is happy. And, you know, so I really like the flexibility of all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of golden nuggets that you dropped there. I think the big thing, as you mentioned, is is the flexibility of credit unions. And some people will duck their head and avoid having these difficult conversations. But as long as you are transparent with them, it's as much as the credit union's asset as it is yours. The last thing they want is to own that asset and then have the borrower default. And so they'll work with you as long as you have a solid business case and business plan that you can present to them. Yeah. On the flip side, I agree with a lot of the things that you said on this MLI Select program. I think one of the things I've been seeing is people numbers will only work out if they are able to leverage at the 85, 90% yeah. value. Then 10 years comes. What if your rate is even half a percent more? That is pretty significant sort of money that you need to cough up. That's going to be a big capital call for you and or your investors, right? Yeah. Because of how leveraged you are, you're so sensitive to the rates. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one thing that I'm seeing is people are just like, oh, the numbers make a lot of sense in the MLI select. Yeah. But if I calculate everything with an 85, 90% loan to value, it's going to be a burr. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You just can't. Exactly. And, you know, anecdotally as well, how many people do any of us know that have gone through that program and been happy with how it all worked out versus how many people who are considering it or I'm in the middle of an application? Like that's been the case for you know, like with CMHC and all this stuff for since I've heard about it, like there's been a few that have gone through with it and been decently happy with how it worked out. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be some degree of cognitive dissonance there where it's like, well, of course, it better have been worth it. I spent six months on the application and, you know, like you got to convince yourself it was worth it at that point. But I mean, I'm not knocking it entirely because I think that there are scenarios again, but it needs to be a fully stabilized building that you have no intention of accessing equity on for the next five years for sure. Yeah, no, just like with any other product, it makes sense in some cases, but in a lot of cases, people can misuse the product as well, which is kind of what we're seeing. Sorry, Mike, you were going to chime in with something. No, I was just going to say, I think the people that the deal works on a 25-year amortization with the credit unions, 
they're just taking that. Like if, if that's like enough of a refinance yeah. to pay out whatever kind of private money, pull out whatever capital. It's the people that need CMHT and need the MLI for the deal to work. Those are the guys that are like asking to things out. It's like, okay, well, we'll spend the six months to like go through this entire process. We'll pay these like drastic fees because it's our only exit, right? So I think as an investor, I think it's like, okay, cool. You can keep CMHT and MLI as the cherry on top. But if that's the only exit plan, that's not a situation you want to exactly. be in. Exactly. Right? That's the way to look at it. Yeah. 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 It's something you can look into, but don't rely upon it. Similar to, yeah. you know, if you're buying a building, you're planning an Airbnb, you know, make sure it also works as a long-term rental. If it works out great, you can follow through with that, but you have your backup plan. But I think, you yeah. know, in the lending world, the reality is in Canada, people are having a hard time making sense of deals. So they're finding like, what I'm kind of calling like essentially like private subprime mortgages, you know, like that's like Canada's yeah. version of subprime mortgages is start a social media account and start and convince people to loan you money. That's how you get loans you shouldn't be getting. That's sort of how things are working these days. So if you can't make sense of these deals with bank financing and, you know, you don't have any of your own money and stuff like, man, like, I don't know, that stuff doesn't scale very well. The only reason it worked for the years in the years past is that we were in a in an up market you know and we're not in that situation and man it works the opposite in this market you know if you apply that strategy in this market in that market it was accelerating growth and in this market it's accelerating a decline so the last question for you con i know a majority if not all of your investors are still kind of the london area i'm curious your outlook for that area any kind of like macroeconomic trends or like employment changes or like anything that's changing in the london area that you want to bring to light I'm just curious to learn about different markets. So, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I don't actually dive too deep into this stuff. I mean, London's got a half a million people in it, approximately. It's got all sorts of hospitals. It's got University of Western Ontario, Fanshawe College. It, overall, a solid city. I mean, it's located in a decent place, a couple hours from Toronto. It's been growing. Like we've seen, especially to the north, London's just been like urban sprawl for, for the last years. So, I mean, I, I feel good about London in the long term. I, I don't really think there's too much to... I think that those trends and stuff you really need to look into, especially when you're looking at like smaller cities, because then you really need to make sure that this makes sense. But if you're buying in a city with a half a million people in it, like like London, I, I just overall, it's a gut feeling, I guess, which is probably not the way to look at it. But I feel pretty decent about it in the long run. But the reality of it is like when you're comparing it with cities that have higher cash, smaller cities that have higher cash flow. I mean, I just generally feel safer in a market like London than in a place that's got like 20 to 50,000 people that I mean, some small town in the middle of nowhere. I have no idea where that town's going to be in 20 years, but I feel pretty good about a place like London that's had university in it for a hundred plus years and all these hospitals and stuff. It, it all just feels fine to me. Okay. So Kellen, at this point in the podcast, we have to get two questions. So the first is what are your goals over like the next like five years from like a business, like real estate perspective? How do you see your investment changing? Same thing I've always been doing. I'm going to continue scaling slowly with no partners and focus on the large multifamily space. So I'm in a stabilization period right now. And then ideally, I'll get back into an acquisition phase in like, you know, six to 12 months or something like that when I've got some liquidity and just continue doing the same thing I've always been doing. So five year goal. I don't have any specific number in mind. I don't have like a goal number of units or anything like that. Although in my head, I suppose it would be nice to hit the 100 unit mark. So I'm not too, too far off. It'd be kind of nice to pick up like a, well, actually, I have that eight unit building that I had the, the perfect burr on recently. It has the potential to build a 12 unit apartment building, three story walk up on that land without having to buy any more land. So that might end up tipping me over the mark. So and then that just made that deal even better. <laughs> so we have we have an application in right now with the city on that. So that would be my first development. <laughs> That's exciting. I guess for newer investors in today's market, what's the main risk that you can see for them? 
I mean, we talked about a lot of them already. I would say the main risk is if they're taking on a deal that they don't see, they don't see a clear plan. And if they don't see a clear plan, they need to make sure that they have, again, their own money in the deal and they're able to just ride things through. If you're borrowing the money to take on that deal that doesn't have a clear plan, then you don't have the option to just ride it through. So make sure that you have the option to ride it through and ideally take on a deal that has a clear plan that helps build momentum. If you're not doing those things, that's going to be a high risk. And if you're not buying your own deals and you're choosing to lend, be extremely cautious in that space. Awesome. Yeah. Great advice there. I feel like whenever we chat, there's just a lot of realness in the room (laughs) because a lot of people like to pump real estate and just kind of talk about their successes, but there are a lot of obstacles to get where you are. Right. And I feel like even for me in my journey, there are things that I made that had a ton of financial gain, like decisions I made. But when I look back at it, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have made some of those same decisions because like maybe the market just blew up and it just happened to you know cover any mistakes I've made. Yeah. Right now, you can't afford to be making those same mistakes that so you almost need to be very precise when you enter and exit deals and have a clear game plan. One thing before, like, I think what I want to give you guys props for is being real as well with what's going on in your situation. Like, you know, if you're looking at this with like we all are from a personal branding perspective, you know, hopefully we're also looking at it in a 10, maybe 20 year, you know, future. And it's like, if people see us, you know, not being real during times like this, then they're going to think, you know, if, if the goal, like the goal is that people can kind of trust you and know that what you're saying is the truth. So, you know, if people see us ride through a period of time like this, and it doesn't feel like they're being quite honest about their situation, like in the future, when whatever you've got going on, people are always going to have that bit of an asterisk beside it. So like, such an important part of personal branding is that you're just being honest and the goal about this. And that's what, you know, you guys have been doing is just document your journey, you know, like, and that's like the Gary Vee philosophy, just document your journey. You know, it doesn't need to be always a win, you know, and ideally the business can be structured in such a way where you don't have to be winning in order to attract clients or in order to attract partners or whatever. It's like, just have a situation where you can be real. So it's that props to you guys for doing that. Appreciate it, man. I feel like I get a lot more engagement when I post my losses than I ever do my wins. <laughs> that's when you get the DMs and the comments. Like, just keep losing money, man. Just keep losing money. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the scale. Scale that up. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I really enjoy chatting with you. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, how could they best do so? Yeah. So my Instagram is the main way, Kellen James. I am going to get more into other content and other platforms soon. So maybe keep an eye out for that. Otherwise, my website is kellenjames.ca. That's where my mentorship program and stuff is as well. So we do like six-month mentorship. We do calls every couple of weeks. People can text me anytime. And just try to walk them through whether it's their first, second deal or a lot of my students are like five to 10 properties or trying to scale up from there. So mm-hmm. those are the mm-hmm. best places to get in touch. We're actually going to have one of your students on when they're back from their seven or eight month trip, Elaine and Tommy. Shout oh, out to awesome. them. I've, yeah. been, I've been trying to pull them to come on, but I don't want to bother them while they're enjoying their travels. But oh, that no, should be a totally super should. interesting episode. You should get Tony on as well. Like there's, there's a bunch of students of mine that have done quite well. There's some, there's a few of them that have quit their jobs and are traveling now and stuff. So that'll be a good episode. Love <laughs> it. Awesome. Yeah, and we're, and just uh, for everyone yeah. out there, we are looking for guests for the 2023 year. So if you have interest in being on our podcast, hit us up rise network event at gmail.com and we'll make sure to go ahead and see if we're the right fit to have you on. And again, Kellen, really appreciate you jumping on, man. All the best to you and your journey. You're always like someone I can kind of like lean on and look on 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 Instagram for some honest advice of what's going on to cut through the noise out there. So so keep that up, man. 
And if you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, show some love. Also revisit episode 18, where Kellen was on that episode too, to hear back on kind of his progress when he got started off and his intro into investing a lot of value there as well. Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.